the way it was introduced to GitHub, I remember, and also what helped the transition of Hub to Go, what gave me confidence is that I started seeing my colleagues around me that I didn't directly work, but that I, they were really people I looked, engineers that I looked up to. They started using Go for microservices. And the first microservice that was extracted from the monolith, that is a Rails app, that is github.com, is the one that still today delivers avatars. And those developers had a really good time writing this in Go even that was unheard of before in the org. I, I think they just had enough of their hands untied that they could just chip a new service written in whatever they seemed fit. And seeing their success with that and also their involvement and contribution to Hub around that time also really helped develop this Go version. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. What up, friends? You might not be aware, but we've been partnering with Linode since 2016. That's a long time ago. Way back when we first launched our open source platform that you now see at Changelog.com, Linode was there to help us and we are so grateful. Fast forward several years now and Linode is still in our corner, behind the scenes helping us to ensure we're running on the very best cloud infrastructure out there. We trust Linode, they keep it fast and they keep it simple. Get $100 in free credit at linode.com slash changelog. Again, $100 in free credit at linode.com slash changelog. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We're gearing up for GopherCon. Get your tickets and join our three sessions over the lunch hour on November 11th through the 13th. We're doing some fun technical and non-technical interviews, plus our trivia game show. Don't call it Jeopardy, we call it Go Panic, and we think you're going to love it. Right now, it's time to talk about GitHub's new Go-powered CLI. Here we go. Hello and welcome to this episode of Go Time. Welcome back for those of you who are joining us once more. And for those who are of you who are new to the show, yeah, welcome for the first time. Hopefully this is not your last. Hopefully you enjoy today's panel, um, which actually includes Mr. John Calhoun. How are you doing, John? Good, Johnny. How are you? You know, generally speaking, I just answer that, oh, yeah, I'm fine, whatever it is, but I think I'm going to give a different answer today. I think I am, not everything in my life is going quite right. But I'm choosing to focus on the things in my life that are going quite right, right? That way, you know, I can be a bit more, um, how do you say this? I can take stock of everything that's going on and be thankful for the things that are going right, right? Because this is 2020. It could be a lot worse. So, uh, yeah, that's how, that's how I'm going to answer that today. <laughs> and uh, joining us today, special guest is uh, Mr. Mislav, and I know I'm going to mispronounce your name, um, Marotnik. Yeah, I knew I was going to mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Mislav. <laughs> Thank so, you. 
Yes, yes. Awesome to have you. So, Miss La, for those of you who do not know, um, is the maintainer of a project you probably use or have used in the past called Hub. So, Miss La is going to give us a, a little bit of a sort of a hopefully a little bit of a history around sort of Hub, how it sort of a, um, came to be, um, what it's been doing with it <laughs> for the last few years, and uh, also um, uh, if if you haven't heard, there's a new GitHub. Um, CLI um, that's been uh, sort of a release uh, recently and uh, that missile I've also had the opportunity to sort of work on at GitHub. So uh, we're looking forward to sort of unpacking that and, and getting to know how I got so lucky and uh, yeah, sort of uh, uh, getting to learn from his learnings and also uh, as since uh, basically following up on, on our sort of intro to Go uh, or rather introducing Go to your team episode from last week. Hopefully this is a this is kind of add some flavor to uh, the stories that Miss Live is gonna is gonna tell us about uh, Go at GitHub in general. So um, yeah, let's let's get into this. Um, so Miss Live, you wanna give us? I mean, I've already introduced you as as the person who sort of you know maintains in Hub and and now the GitHub CLI officially. But uh, can can you give us a little bit uh, of uh, an intro to yourself? Who are you, my friend? Sure, I work for GitHub for seven years now and. That's the place I feel like I have some impact because I get to like with these command line tools, they let me experiment a lot and I get to open source a lot what I do and I get to ultimately help this platform, which is a large part of what it is for, is about sustaining the open source world. And that's what uh, makes me happy. And this is what I like to contribute my free time into. But nowadays I'm lucky enough to also be doing open source as my full-time job. Awesome. You are the envy of many out there, my friend. <laughs> you get to work on uh, you know, things you love and, and open source and contribute back uh, and, and somebody pays your bills um, for that. That is pretty awesome. So do give us a little bit of background on Hub. Uh, so the, how did you come to sort of inherit that project as, as a maintainer on it? What was its original goals as a, as a project and how, how did that evolve under your stewardship? Well, the story of Hub starts about 10 years ago or more, 11, when it was just a short script made by Chris Wanstrath, or known as Defunct on his online handle, then CEO and co-founder at GitHub. And it was basically a little gimmick. Um, it was meant to extend the interface of Git in a way that it just feels slightly more GitHub-y and defaults for certain shorthands to GitHub URLs as opposed to somewhere else and just makes Git much have more sense working with, with GitHub. And that was really well received also by me, who was really at the time nerding out about just CLIs in general and Git and had been already a very active GitHub user. So I started contributing a lot and eventually, as I guess other people who have, especially Chris, who has been kicked off the whole project, as, as his participation kind of faded out, that as often becomes of open source project, somebody sometimes comes along and takes it over, and I just appear to be that person. So since then, I continue writing it, but over time, it had this organic adoption into a tool that eventually was considered GitHub's official CLI tool, which was... Definitely not, but I guess now in hindsight, I can feel how that might have been moving the project under the GitHub org eventually, even though it was maintained ultimately by a then non-GitHub employee. 
was something that signaled strongly that this is uh, something that has an organization backing it. Whereas it was mostly just like a pet project still, and it was an experiment. It just kind of grew beyond just a little gimmicky tool that people use on the command line. And eventually I've started to feel really large responsibility about it because so many people have been using it. So I kind of stepped up my project maintenance to, to give it more and more time. And eventually GitHub noticed that this is something that is really worthwhile having to the extent of investing a whole team, resource of a whole team into it. And um, they asked me, would I uh, want to participate because I had advertised that I want to switch teams at that point. So it worked out great for me. I, I got to like change up my job after six years, which I feel I had a good run and then do something completely different. Mm -hmm. So you started working on Hub before you were working at GitHub, correct? Yeah. Okay. So did that help you when you were like applying to GitHub? Did that, <laughs> like, how did that work? I guess, did that help you get through the interview process a lot easier or, you know, was that something you talked about with them? I'm sure it did. It's the way the GitHub hires then, so about seven and eight years ago, and the, the way that it hires right now, of course, very different because GitHub is a very different organization since then. But I do remember yeah, having this privilege of having known uh, at the point most people who I have either founded GitHub or otherwise there in a really high cloud capacity. And not in a way just like buddies or something, but in a way that I have actually spent tons of hours and even up to some of them in several years collaborating on open source project. So I think as sort of like an interview, if you can see a person in front of you and instead of them solving a blackboard problem for you, you know that with this person you have years of experience collaborating, coding, reviewing PRs and something like that. I, I think that all that experience before that was basically a very prolonged sort of interview process. And I feel I must have made a good impact because they had the trust in me that I'll be really passionate about what I'm doing. And even though I was this remote employee who is always traveling and, and working from different time zones, and I think the trust paid off eventually. Since then, I was really excited to work here. So you said the first like hub started off as like a Ruby script. Or you, you said a script. I, I think I read that it was a Ruby script. Is that correct? Yeah, Hub, the idea was that Hub was a single file script, so it can be just easily copied over to any system. So the initial version was kind of meant to replace Git, and I think over time it evolved, at least the GitHub API or the GitHub CLI that we have now doesn't feel like it's meant to be you know, a, a Git replacement, like it's not supposed to be an alias for that. So around what time did you sort of start to feel that wasn't the case with Hub like as it evolved? Well, maybe we should first define what is replacing Git mean. Uh, is the way I see it, if somebody wanted to replace Git, they would probably have uh, two main potential ways of doing it. So they could either abstract it away in a sense of replacing its entire API, which is on the command line, all these commands that we use, log, commit, rebase, and things like that, um, replacing it with a smaller API. So something that makes for sense for an abstraction. And of course, abstractions want to have a smaller surface area. And another way would be extending it. So on top of all those commands, we add some more commands and we add certain extra flags. And even though Git is by itself, by nature, 
extendable as its core feature that it can invoke other git slash something executables if they're found in a path. Uh, even though git is extendable in that way, it's not extendable in a way that really likes extra flags to be added to exist existing commands. So that part is kind of really hacked on in a little bit of a Frankenstein manner that's, that's hard to maintain. And we also considered eventually doing an abstraction of Git in a sense that what if we could capture the, the essence of the Git's API, mostly as it matters to 80% or 90% of GitHub users and only expose that. But that was such a scary, just even a concept to hold as a team, both then when we were considering that with Hub or and now when before we released uh, CLI, we were considering that for CLI. And in both instances, we decided not to do it. So I think somebody who decided to do it, that's a really big, I think, um, really bold undertaking that I don't necessarily would want to discourage people from, but I think that is um, much less feasible than doing other kinds of extensions, which allow still Git to be used in its full capacity. So just to add a little context, when we talk about extending it, we're talking about doing things like normally if you type git clone, you have to give a URL. Um, so like the extensions that I remember at least with Hub were things like you type git clone um, and then like a username slash a repo and it would just know, okay, I'm going to go to GitHub and pull it from that user and that repo and it would sort of expand that stuff. Are there other ones that you can think of that might have stuck out? But I think that's probably a good example of you know, what type of extensions it was doing. That's a very good example, yeah. That one is basically taking an argument and transforming it, massaging it a little bit before it reaches Git proper. Other kinds could be adding a certain flag that only makes sense in conjunction with GitHub that doesn't exist there with Git otherwise. And some others would be adding a completely separate command. Like for instance, Hub has a sync command, which if you wrap Git as Hub, then you can type Git sync and have all the local branches synced up with the remote ones. So all these different types of additions to Git were shipped as the same tool. And that was powerful in a way that it adds a lot of features at once and it can feel to somebody who studied it as a really good tool set to add to their arsenal. But I think overall just was too much of different layers of additions that people would mostly pick one and benefit from uh, some of them, but then to some others, they wouldn't even notice nor appreciate, or sometimes they would even get in their way by subtle bugs that would be in the layer that's added on top of Git. So it was hard to maintain it that way. Yeah, that makes sense. I imagine it would be incredibly hard to get something that sits on top of Git and still doesn't like alter something or somehow break some functionality of Git without realizing it. So you talked about things like sync and cloning that would sort of add functionality that was GitHub specific. When you were just like building Hub, did you think about adding stuff that was not GitHub specific, was just sort of extensions onto Git that you wanted? Or did you leave that to the, you said that you could extend Git itself with just like Git slash, I think they're bash scripts, is that what they normally are? Or scripts of some sort. Did you usually leave that to people or were you doing stuff like that as well with Hub? Well, Hub does add some of its extra commands to Git and well, GitHub CLI, as a next iteration of the tool, decided it doesn't, uh, as it doesn't wrap Git at all. But uh, going back to Hub, 
it doesn't prevent the user from also adding their own extensions. It just would, well, the extensions of the same name would clash. So if somebody would add a custom command, which could be implemented in Bash, but the beauty of Git is just, it would execute anything ex executable. So it really doesn't matter in which language something is written in, it will be invoked with a certain set of parameters and then it's up to that thing to do whatever it needed to do. And Hub did add some of its extensions and sometimes those extensions in rare cases, but those people were vocal, they would clash with their own. So it was also a little bit testing the limit of this extension framework of Git, which is very bare bones and it's not really meant to be taken to the extent that Hub was taking it. So I feel that maybe it was a little bit intruding on this extension system that was really just meant as a very simple system for users specifically for their direct environment to maintain as as third-party tools like hub and others would try to move in on the system and plug into the same mechanic it just wouldn't scale past that point anymore so i felt that that was a little bit of um misuse of that mechanism in the first place okay that makes sense so you said at one point that when we talked about hub it was written in ruby and now I don't think you'd be on the podcast if it wasn't written in Go or if the new CLI wasn't written in Go. So, I don't know, maybe. I mean, maybe, you know. <laughs> but it, it might not make as much sense. So how did that evolution sort of happen? Um, you know, how did you go from Ruby to Go? What led to you trying out Go, I guess? Well, that was um, probably the most ridiculous thing that, that happened in any of my projects. Or imagine it to your open source project that already has a huge code base and... Um, thousands or tens of thousands of users, somebody comes along and rewrites it all in from Go to Rust or something like that and says, here you go. <laughs> You're now supposed to merge this thing, <laughs> deleting all of your code and replacing it with new code. This is basically what, what, what happened. There was this person who maintained for a while his fork of Hub that was a total rewrite from Ruby. And this person's, uh, his name is Owen, primary motivation was that, well, Ruby was really slow. Ruby took, um, the Ruby interpreter took about 60 seconds then on my machine on a really high-end MacBook to only start. And that was often not even including things like the standard library. So as soon as you would then require net HTTP of the same name as is, is it in Go from the standard library that would add maybe 20 more or something like that. And so we were talking about almost, we're now at a hundred milliseconds and the program hasn't even started doing it anything yet. <laughs> um, the other thing is portability. People had to install Ruby on the system and they had to be not a very certain version of Ruby, but over time Ruby versions change that are pre-installed on the system or some things get injected into the Ruby loader by default that it, is not longer compatible when it boots up for hubs purposes. And there was all sorts of these problems, which it was just really hard to make it really seamlessly portable unless somebody already had a Ruby development environment. That's all okay because they understand their environment. But to somebody who would just like to use hub that they now have to commit to maintaining the Ruby version over system upgrades over the years, it was a pain for a lot of users. So a pre-compiled binary that is just cross-compiled for different systems and can be just dropped in there that sounded like a dream. And I actually didn't believe it because I had no experience of Go. It was this new thing and I'm not a very fast learner or early <laughs> adopter of things. 
And it took me a while to warm up to the idea, but slowly I started working with Owen to really solidify the test suite around the transition so we can have some confidence that we didn't break too much. We knew that every complete rewrite will introduce a lot of bugs, not the normal amount of bugs with like as a PR or something, but a lot of them. And we just at least try to minimize this not to lose the trust of, of the hub community. And it took us six months of mostly addressing edge cases. And in the meantime, every new feature that was merged in the Ruby version was ported over by us to the Go version. So that was almost like a full-time job of itself. And I did that then in my afternoons or, or weekends and things like that, as did Owen. And in the end, Owen had the privilege of just hitting delete on the all Ruby code. <laughs> so erasing the entire code <laughs> in the commit, in the next commit after the thing got merged. And suddenly the project was, it was pretty solid transition. We really did well on minimizing the, the bugs because people largely could upgrade and never realize that the program changed up until the point where months later they got the idea to add a feature, they would open the project in its main branch and see, well, nothing familiar like before. <laughs> the organization structure of a Ruby project is really simple. It's just a few Ruby files, that's it. And they went into something like this and they were really confused and they would open an issue, what happened? And uh, so, <laughs> yeah, you weren't here for, you blinked and... <laughs> no, it's in Go. <laughs> In one of the past episodes, I think it was a couple weeks ago, we talked about introducing your team to Go. So, you know, like if you're working at a team that doesn't use Go for anything, some different ideas for, you know, getting them to try it with some sort of project. So after using Go for a CLI, do you think that's a good fit for that type of thing if you're trying the new language out? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's a, it's a great opportunity to introduce it this way. I think also CLIs could be considered as like internal tools as a way of showing uh, in the organization how Go can be productive. The way it was introduced uh, to GitHub, I remember, and also what helped the transition of Hub to Go, what gave me confidence is that I started seeing my colleagues around me that I didn't directly work, but that I they were really people I looked, engineers that I looked up to, they started using Go for microservices. And the first microservice that was extracted from the monolith, that is a Rails app, that is uh, github.com, uh, is the one that still today delivers avatars, uh, stores users' avatars and organization ones and team ones and things like those. And those developers had a really good time writing this in Go even that was unheard of before in the org. I, I think they just had enough um, of their hands untied that they could just chip a new service written in whatever they seemed fit. And seeing their success with that and also their involvement and contribution to Hub around that time also really helped develop this Go version. And uh, we likely couldn't have shift it without that. And I also wouldn't have the confidence to merge in a rewrite to a language that I'm kind of still unfamiliar with, had it not been for my colleagues that were at the same time introducing Go to the rest of GitHub. And now Go at GitHub is just a huge slice of the org. So many services are written in it. And it's, I would say that is almost as fundamental right now to engineer in GitHub as Ruby is.
What's up, nerds? Have you ever seen a problem and thought to yourself, I bet I could do it better? Our friends at Equinix agree with that. Equinix is the world's digital infrastructure company, and they've been connecting and powering the digital world for over 20 years now. They just launched a new product called Equinix Metal. It's built from the ground up to empower developers with low latency, high performance infrastructure anywhere. We'd love for you to try it out and give them your feedback. Visit metal.equinix.com slash changelog, get $500 in free credit to play with, plus a rad t-shirt. Again, metal.equinix.com slash changelog, get $500 in free credit. Equinix Metal, build freely. Going in a slightly different direction, when you talked about the transition from Ruby to Go, you said that you had to sort of take the test suite and make it so it covered both of them. Can you talk a little bit about how you were testing the CLI in a way that you know you could actually use it for both languages? Because I think a lot of us, when we think testing, we think about like running Go test and having unit tests run or integration tests of some sort. But I don't think that's what you were doing if it's something you could run with both Ruby and Go. So what did that look like? So one thing to keep in mind while I'm talking of anything about Hub is that because of the history of Hub and because of its nature of just starting up as a mere proof of concept and evolving far more rapidly in popularity than it actually evolved technically, um, mm -hmm. Hub was always this treasure trove of anti-patterns, I would say. So it was not definitely the project that I would advise anyone to look for either good Ruby practices <laughs> in terms of testing or later good Go practices because I made probably every Go mistake in a book with a Hub project because it was my first uh, Go project and I hadn't been before in teams of other people working on Go so that I can see how people were experienced with using it. I was mostly just inventing its use as I went along and that was not really great. But of course, we all have to learn somewhere. So in the Ruby side, the testing approach was, at first, there were some unit tests, but the test coverage wasn't really great. Just a very few isolated functions were unit tested. And uh, overall, Hub had a very solid and good coverage, but it was done by end-to-end -end testing um, through a tool called Cucumber. And I would say story-driven development because we would write it in um, in this uh, uh, human parsable cucumber format, which would then execute those feature files as, as, as they were called and drive you the usage of hub from the outside as if a user is typing into the terminal. And some of the tests took it to the extreme where literally we would use tmux, the terminal, multiplexer basically to spawn an internal terminal to the test, the headless one, to literally send keystrokes in an interactive shell and type hub, pull request, these and these flags, press enter, and then inspect what's happening after that. And so much of the test coverage was done that way. And I really spent a lot of time making sure that we have really good test coverage across the whole code base, but it's not an approach that I would recommend in the long run for the next person who's listening to this who might want to use Go to create a command line app. But somehow in a 
bizarre twist of, of things, because of the rewrite from one language to another, we could have kept the entire test suite because the test suite never knew what hub was written in. It just ran the hub executable. So when we rewrote it in Go, mostly what we had to change is those parts where we stubbed out things. For instance, the GitHub API is completely stubbed out. We don't run the test and then have it talk to the GitHub API. That would just uh, not be, well, first, not great performance, but second of all, they would be really hard to maintain when it comes to write actions as opposed to get actions. But the way this test was set up, separate server pretending to be GitHub API was spun up in Ruby. And after the rewrite, we had no really reason to rewrite this test server. So the code base continued to have a test runner, which is read in the Cucumber language, which is executed in Ruby and also uses Sinatra that pretends to be a GitHub API server. And in the end, I think that's that's why I use this um, Frankenstein expression earlier because it was this stitched abomination of of different texts which made no sense if you were to drop into a project uh, <laughs> and wanted to open up a pull request you would think I thought I was contributing to a Go thing and now I'm editing Sinatra API endpoint or something like that but it worked beautifully as long as nobody touched it ever and as long as there was precisely mostly over the time one person working on it who understood how it all worked. It's fine when you have one developer who understands all of this. It would have been a nightmare if this was any sort of project where there's actual business value to it or um, some pressure or a shipping cadence or something like that or a team of people working on it. So it, that would not be something I recommend as a developer in practice, but it somehow worked out and it brought us that far. You know, and <laughs> I was chuckling partly because I know of... of some projects that are still in production today that fit that, fit that criteria. <laughs> nobody touch it because nobody knows, you know, how this thing works and, you know, the Frankenstein that we've got here and whatnot. That's how software evolves, right? Over time and, and as you bolt on pieces and different different developers, different perspectives, different hands, you know, uh, touching touching that thing, it's, it's yeah, it, it can certainly get that way for sure. I did want to sort of uh, uh, mention that uh, Owen, actually, who, who was uh, that first transition, used to be a, a, a colleague of mine over at, over at Heroku. Uh, he's, uh, he's moved on recently. He's a pretty smart uh, fella, and I think you were lucky, right, to have had uh, somebody like him as sort of a, to help you, like, you know, in your sort of a journey. I think, you know, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, man, like, when I was letting go, like, it would have been amazing to have, like, a like a super mentor who really knows the ins and outs of the thing to sort of help you along kind of thing. But, yeah, I think you lucked out there for sure. Yeah, it was, um, it was great to jump into his code base and then to learn Go by literally just kind of tweaking the variables and functions that he laid out. And I think, like many people, I, I prefer learning not from a blank slate, so a new language. If I had to write out the new program from a blank directory, I'm not going to do so well. But if I jump into an existing one, then I'm like, I'm just having this kickstart and wind in my back and I can start editing things and uh, seeing his git log of changes on a certain command and how he got to the point there. That was also just almost as if I get to sit next to his shoulder while he's coding. And eventually I did. We met up once when I was passing through Vancouver and we got a hack together. But of course, most of our uh, collaboration was asynchronous and across continents. And, uh, well, I could thank him primarily to get me through my first year of learning, definitely. definitely. Oh. 
So you had mentioned that like you, you eventually rewrote Hub into Go, and now we have the new CLI, which I believe is written in Go as well, but I think it's a complete rewrite from the ground up. So do you want to talk a little bit about that rewrite? What caused you to decide to throw out what you had and write something from scratch? And since you were writing from scratch again, what made you decide to use Go this time? Well, Go was a very short discussion with the rest of my team, all of whom other than me were unfamiliar with Go to the sense, well, they were familiar with it, but they were not using it for anything of substance up to that point in their engineering careers. And I had pitched the Go idea mostly as a way to preserve what already we know worked well. And that was, well, I'm a big fan of its compiler. I think it's very robust and very gives me a lot of confidence in it while I write code together with a good integration with Go PLS, for instance, right now in a text editor and uh, having this confidence that everything is wired up properly through static typing. And for me, that was a big departure coming from very dynamic languages like Ruby into uh, learning how to let go of that mentality and uh, be, become very secure in the, in the static typing mentality. And another of the qualities that we wanted to preserve is portability. And it was, a, I remember it being a very short conversation because my colleagues were just evaluating those things and thinking about some potentially other languages we can write it in. But all resonated, all of that that I just mentioned resonated with them. So they were absolutely on board with, all right, well, we're learning Go now. And through the next few weeks and months, um, they went from basically zero to also doing Go on a, like me, myself right now on a daily basis. And uh, I would say that they surpassed already my abilities because I sometimes feel I'm catching up to the rest of my team. So... I guess I'm asking about the rewrite because typically when you hear people talk about projects or like to go back to your Frankenstein, you said that Hub was kind of a Frankenstein with the test suite being in Ruby with some Sinatra and other things like that. I think when you're a new college graduate or you're newly coming into the field, you learn all these things about best practices and then you go to an organization and you see a repo like that and you think, what are these people thinking? This is a terrible idea. And you don't really think about how projects evolve over time and if you actually saw the whole history, it would make complete sense. But when you just see it brand new, you're like, this doesn't make sense. So a lot of newcomers to the field will think, well, we need to rewrite this. But almost always that's a bad idea because it you, know, you spend so much time rewriting and trying to get feature parity that it is really hard to do. But in your case, it seems like you successfully rewrote and it sounds like you think that was the right decision. And I'm not saying it wasn't, I just... So I guess, can you like share a little bit about like what really motivated you to be like, this needs to be rewritten from the ground up? Well, and when it came from learning what worked, really worked as a, with a hub tool and then choosing how much of that we want to promote to eventually, of that spirit do we want to promote to eventually being GitHub CLI as an official tool, we mostly went over its feature set and decided that it's fundamental design paradigm was not something that we wanted to port over. And then after that, the considering uh, importing any of its code, it's actually really already, it doesn't align with that first and foremost decision, which we eventually were pretty secure in because, well, if you don't want to preserve the, the spirit of, of, of 
a design of uh, how a tool works, then it's just really hard to to get anything from it, especially due to the fact that being my first Go project, I, I let the the packages in the Go packages become basically huge to the extent where I think there were largely just two Go packages where most of the most of the hub implementation lied. So to pick out to cherry pick the good parts out of that would would have just have been and leave out the bad parts uh, something that's not really feasible technically and I think it's very bug prone. And another thing is that we didn't want to go with the same testing approach, right? So now we're copying over parts of the implementation, but we're actually not going to port over the Ruby test because we want to commit to the Go stack um, and the default Go tooling uh, to make the project more approachable. And with that line of thinking, it was a little bit obvious that uh, starting from scratch would be the right decision. And it's not, It's um, I'm, I appreciate that you brought it up. It's not an easy decision. It should never be made lightly. And I think rewrites should never be made lightly as well. Um, because these are technologically really risky endeavors. But what made it a little bit less risky in our sense is that, well, we were promoting kind of like a semi-official tool to another one. And even if we broke a lot of things or didn't port a lot of functionality over, well, we didn't actually erode trust because we were launching this new tool, which starts over from zero, version 001. And who wants to follow us on our journey can, and who wants to like stay safely embedded with the tool that already works for them also can. And I had felt that we couldn't have kept the trust if we try to make radical changes and then mostly just disappoint people, I would say, that used Hub to do a lot of automation. Like I also personally love to doing that. And they would be the ones who are most affected then trying to upgrade to the newer version and finding out that their scripts are broken and that a tool that they've used as a reliable Swiss army knife is not as reliable. That's That would be my nightmare scenario personally, and me, we avoided it. So speaking of evolution of these tools, so I imagine at some point you are going to start sort of sunsetting hub, right? Because I, I, I can imagine you trying to keep up with basically development of both of these things at the same time. They, they're both their own sort of a, a sub communities and each one is going to have their own needs kind of thing. So like, what is your plan for sort of a ultimately retiring hub and sort of putting all your efforts towards um, the, the official CLI tool and also sort of a guiding or helping people who rely on hub today sort of transition over to the, to the new official tool? I had um, tried to reassure people around the time that I was going to be hired onto the new project that I won't just like right away write off Hub and archive the project and nobody gets any updates anymore. So I did release a few, or at least one that I remember, Bugfix release in in, uh, in this year that also I've uh, parallelly developed CLI. And I feel that I've fell a little bit short on my own like promise how much I'll be invested into it because as it turns out, my primary motivation with Hub was that I got to nerd out on this CLI that talks to this platform where I host most of my projects. So GitHub is not just the place where I work, but it's literally the platform where, where I host all of my open source project and where I communicate with a lot of people on a daily basis as part of my hobby. So that was really important to me and I got to develop these tools to help me accomplish more with it. And eventually that is integrally part of my job as well. So I don't have the same itch to scratch anymore after hours. In fact, after hours, what I'm thinking is, well, 
I don't need to now switch over the VS Code tab to another project that is also a command line client for the same platform that I just worked for eight hours on. And I guess because my need for tinkering on CLIs is, is, was satisfied, I had felt that I had not followed up as much as uh, I didn't make a strong promise, but as much as I imagined in my head. And I will have to publicly admit that in the sense that I, I will have kind of signal that better to the community about how much I'm actually going to de-escalate my involvement. And uh, But I do want to make a series of updates before that handle things more in the long run, more like authentication to GitHub, which is subtly changing in its API versions and maybe potentially exposing things that people have been asking for a while. But ultimately, I was just imagining adding investing more into the features that are about extensibility and people writing their own scripts, like the Hub API tool that has a completely equivalent counterpart in the GitHub CLI, which is called GH API. And I feel investing in the source of tools is great for everyone in the long run because I can make a minimum amount of changes to enable other people making a lot more changes on top of that without necessarily hub shipping updates. So I want to leave it in a, in a, in a place where it's still going to be useful for years to come and extensible for years to come, but not necessarily have to receive new commands over the future. I think that makes sense. So you've written two CLIs and Go, or you've worked on two at this point. Are there any libraries or tools that you found especially useful or especially, like, what are the ones you'd recommend? What are the ones that you've used that you sort of didn't care for? Um, you know, for somebody who wants to build a CLI, what are you recommending to them? Well, there, when I started looking at that in Go and wanting to apply that to Hub, uh, by that time, Owen has already made is dispatcher, command dispatcher from scratch. So there was no third-party library that we imported for that purpose. And maybe tools like Cobra right now, which is really popular, or your fave slash CLI. Sorry, some of these projects are only known by their GitHub uh, <laughs> owner slash repo pairs, because that's how I refer to them from Go import statements, I guess. Right. Those projects, I'm not sure even if they existed. It was a bit a while ago. And even if they did, we couldn't have used them because as it turns out, the problem of writing a dispatcher that is an extension or a wrapper to something else, like its own commands and having one that just is its own self-contained command, like completely new CLI, like a Kube CTL, that part would have made it none of those tools really usable. So it was first from scratch. Um, I would not generally recommend that unless it's a kind of like an exercise. If somebody is doing this for hobby, for instance, learning Go, I would actually recommend it. It's a great exercise. If you love writing CLIs and exploring how you can structure them in Go from scratch, um, it's a great way of learning. I would not recommend it for a work project where maybe a, a CLI that you're trying to introduce to your team should immediately do something useful and not be just a code exercise. And I feel that's a great way to get other people's buy-in on a certain piece of technology that is not just a, a gimmick, but it's also very useful and um, that it can iterate fast with. And to go, actually, with those libraries, I would, I would heartily encourage any of the, that, those that I mentioned. But we have a closer relationship with a Cobra project because, well, we, we chose it for the um, GitHub CLI project. And I think over time that that Cobra really changed in either direction on which people were responsible for it. And I know that it's from first-hand maintainer perspective, I know how hard it is to maintain projects for many years that especially when they have a lot of eyes on them and a lot of dependence because what that means is 
extra pressure to the maintainers. I think our risk of burning out is actually rising with popularity of our projects. And so popularity is not always a good thing. And I feel for Cobra that this necessity to maintain backwards compatibility, which I absolutely agree with, eventually kind of coordinated into this stalemate in which it's hard to make any kind of significant change to the project, even though some of the initial decisions that they did about which stream, which they output to, how do they do error handling, how do they do help command and the help flag and things like that. Eventually, a lot of that didn't work for us in GitHub CLI, and we started working around it or implementing parts of Cobra outside in an orthogonal in a separate package. So by now, I feel that for our purposes, it would have been maybe a better decision to go with something simpler that we don't have to fight against or to have just a better overview of what Cobra is and what Cobra isn't and try not to delegate too much to the tool if it can't handle the load. So I kind of feel that in hindsight, I wish that some of the Cobra documentation was pushing you towards the better practices rather than encouraging you like, here's how to get started, generate this file and generate this file and add this command here and here. But the way that the tutorial is set up eventually creates a Go command structure that ultimately I feel doesn't scale as evident by all of the Cobra large projects that I've studied, for instance, the Kube CTL, um, which is an incredible CLI. There's so much to study there. And I had find that they're using Cobra in such an unusual way. And eventually that made sense, but it was not really apparent why they did so before we ran into all of those roadblocks. And I feel that they must have, have ran into them as well, because now the project is organized that they did. But I would recommend, uh, I guess, not relying too much on the CLI library and using it more as an accessory, as an underlying implementation detail of the library, but uh, structuring the library in a manner that you could imagine that the specific CLI implementation like Cobra or your fave slash CLI could have been swapped out with minimal disruption. That's what I would recommend. I think that makes sense, especially if you're building something large that needs to withstand the test of time. Were there any other tools that stood out to you? Like I know if, if I recall correctly, the CLI has like some color-coded text and some other text formatting and things like that. Did you find specific tools were helpful or libraries were helpful with that sort of stuff? So for me, it's off the top of my head. It's sometimes hard to re remember these. Um, we're cheating because we're probably looking at the Google Docs file. <laughs> Authors <laughs> and things like that. But I can I can also quickly just open to, to refresh my memory. There is definitely some things that I find myself reaching over and over. And not just myself, but I see common dependencies in this uh, the projects. For so, for instance, the Testify library is um, not just used by by our team for testing, um, but is also used wider at GitHub in other Go teams as well. So I feel something that's that's the tool that we reach for often, even though we try to stay as as close. Other, of course, than with the exception of using Testify, try to stay close to the Go standard library for testing and not deviate in that too much. And then some tools that we are using are authored by a GitHub user, Mitchell H, and another GitHub user called Moosley. So the, of, uh, the a lot of the tools made by those two users 
Uh, and of course, Matt N. Yes, Matt N. That uh, published tools like Go Colorable, Go is a terminal. And it had seemed that almost like a lot of the issues that we had, a lot of problems that there were these prolific GitHub and Go contributors who have already encountered these problems and made these like super tiny, hyper-specialized libraries. And I was really a fan of those. I'm not necessarily always a fan of in the JavaScript world with the NPM and others of the super tiny micro-specialized JavaScript libraries, but I was very much a fan of that here because it was something that we could then easily reuse across projects and rely on. And I think if somebody compared the hub code base and the CLI code base, they would have found uh, plenty of the same library dependency. Um, For Markdown library, I'm actually really impressed by the renderer. It's a project from Charm Bracelet slash Glamour. And I'm, without looking it up, I would say that it uses Black Friday for um, markdown parsing, which I also found to be a very useful library. And I guess, yeah, a lot of, a lot of tools that were already there were really made it possible for us to just launch ourselves in this space. But also I have, in a sense of when all of these tools that I enumerated, they don't necessarily have to do with writing a CLI. They don't have to necessarily specifically apply with writing a CLI. And I feel maybe that specifically tools that interact with the capabilities of the terminal and um, are able to uh, output different colors, but also in a, in a way that respects user setting and the capabilities of the terminal, things like that. I think the fact that those tools are hyper-specialized and so scattered around makes it kind of hard to discover them and assemble them in a proper way. So I had kind of had experience in the JavaScript world of writing CLIs that um, CLI-related libraries were much more mature. And I had not experienced as much that with Go. I had, I had more felt that a person really needs to spend a lot of time researching these tools. And sometimes under a time pressure to ship, that does not always work out. It maybe works out for a hobby project. Sounds like a good blog post. It could be, but I feel even as a person who always feels like I want to contribute back to all this plethora of, of tools that were like the Go project itself made by people in, in an open source uh, uh, fashion, I would sometimes thinking, well, if there's a big hole that it, it is there, why not? invest some time in filling it. So I'll try to divest some of my learnings from doing GitHub CLI to, to maybe start creating more of the Go libraries because it's I feel it's one of the ways that I always give back to the Ruby community and to the JavaScript community and to the Bash community, even though the Bash community doesn't exist. I like to make the joke because <laughs> I'm a, one of my favorite languages is Bash and I'm, um, I feel that I'm a little bit too overqualified in it for... <laughs> <laughs> a sort of <laughs> limited deployment potential tool. But I see in my future and, and hopefully maybe in my team's future as well that we take some of those learnings and we learn a little bit more about what does it make to make these reusable libraries in a space that there's not so many alternatives that are that we feel are should be doing a certain thing that right now projects are commonly like re-implementing and reinventing over and over. So maybe we'll see something like that. Hi, I'm Matt, and I'd love to tell you about Pace.dev. 
Pace.dev is a minimalist task management and async by default communication tool. Our screen recording feature is actually very popular. Wherever you can leave a comment, just like how easy it is to upload a file, you can record your window or the entire screen and upload it as a video to the team. Sometimes a screen recording is the perfect way to explain something. You know, whether it's a bug that only happens for you or maybe more optimistically, a new feature that you can't wait to show off. And the showcase feature takes that a step further and lets you highlight progress, which is a much more positive experience than trying to make up estimations out of thin air. So please learn more and start your free trial at pace.dev. So I have one more question, and then I think we have to jump to the unpopular opinion segment soon. No, we don't have to. We well, we don't want. have to. We want to. Um, <laughs> People look forward to that stuff, man. <laughs> I, I understand. When you're talking about tooling, I know for me, when I'm building web servers, tools like Sentry are kind of a go-to, where uh, you know something that will allow you to track bugs or errors and log them somewhere. But with the CLI, I imagine that's not really, you know, like you're not running on a web server. You're running on everybody's computer. So how did you handle that challenge of actually figuring out what these bugs were and getting people to report them and, you know, actually handling all of that, I suppose? At the same time, we feel like the non-addition of monitoring and error capturing and reporting and things like that to our tool and saved us a lot of trouble about how to do this consciously and as transparently as possible and as respectful to the user as possible. People don't necessarily are always comfortable with their clients reporting uh, everything that they do and, you know, for reasons that I don't really have to elaborate. And of course, in our case, it's a little bit different because I guess that people hosting their projects on the GitHub platform already means that they have to some extent given GitHub trust and that while they're interacting with a GitHub set of features, they wouldn't mind as much that we report what is the most used command or what is the most used way, what are the most used flags for a certain command, for instance. That would have been very good insight for us. Unfortunately, we have none of that because we haven't built any of that in a tool. It's not out of the question, but I think that I feel in hindsight that we could have structured the project better to lend itself to that case, because I think eventually we, we want to, even just for the purpose of debugging, and gathering statistics about the execution of the tool or how much time is spent in shelling out to Git and how much time is spent in API requests and things like that. I feel that if we designed the tool as a microservice instead with the capability of monitoring and error reporting, that all of this would be easier to find. So I see it in our potential future, but I also f uh, think that it was a big load of a chest that we didn't do it initially. And I think if we ever do it, of course, we'll have to do it in a way that's probably opt-in because right now people are already using the tool and we just can't slide in monitoring where people are not necessarily expecting it. And one place where especially that hurt us is that we don't have any way of crash reporting. And a lot of my colleagues, especially initially in the, in the CLI project, uh, were people who also worked on GitHub Desktop, which is another... GitHub client, but it's graphical. It's, it has nothing to do with CLIs. And GitHub Desktop, on the other hand, has an excellent crash reporter. And that would have been 
uh, GitHub's Desk Crash Reporter was also always a very good kind of like a smoke test. If there was a bad deploy or something, uh, it also has a beta stream for updates. So people could opt into getting beta updates and then those users would then, uh, from their reports, it would have been evident if there was something really uh, crashy that is shipped that is potential blocker. And we don't have that kind of visibility with GitHubCLI at all. So we just have to do very extra diligent that we didn't break it for everyone. And it's really easy to break the CLI tool for people because unlike graphical apps, they CLI tools can execute in so many different environments under so many different permutations of circumstances. I guess their versatility is part of the appeal of the CLI tools that is very low barrier to executing them or running them on a, maybe an embedded system somewhere. But we do have less visibility into it. And these are all trade-offs that we've considered. And I wish that in the future that we can have some more visibility into that because I feel that will empower us to then make better decisions about what really matters in the tool rather than right now relying on self-reporting from users by asking them, okay, what are your most used commands? I think that makes sense. I actually think you should probably leave. You want to lead into the unpopular opinions, Johnny? Oh, no, no, no. I will cede the floor to Mislav. I want to hear some unpopular opinion. <laughs> right. I, heard, I heard a few were brought in, so <laughs> let us hear them. <laughs> well, I'll start with the Go-related one, because the other one was not specifically Go-related. And a lot of what we were excited to do with the GitHub CLI, so the next iteration after Hub, uh, was we wanted to really try out how it feels using the GraphQL version of the GitHub API, which shipped in between. So of course, Hub the originally has used REST version, and there was not enough added value into migrating completely to another version of the, the GraphQL API. So we only did that experiment with GitHub CLI when we eventually start working on it, thinking that there would be this massive win over in this new API paradigm, which is supposedly really more powerful. And I found that the exact features of the Go language, uh, static typing and compiling, that is not actually lend itself well to being a good GraphQL client. And so while I'm talking about this, just keep in mind that I'm mostly just talking about an experience of writing in Go a GraphQL client, so something that makes and parse GraphQL requests. I have zero experience of making a GraphQL server in Go, which some of my colleagues, other colleagues in GitHub have experience with, but I have not first had experience. So this is not about making a server, which I feel that there's more solid tooling. But when we look at the offering of the different GraphQL clients that are written in Go right now, and mostly used as a de facto standard when we look at the largest, most prolific projects that are open source right now, uh, if we look at how they make requests, not just to GitHub's GraphQL API, but to any other, I feel that all of those libraries right now, I'm missing the mark on what makes GraphQL really stand out. GraphQL is not a query language that wanted to be used by having a pre-generated query, which is always the same per compiled version <laughs> of an app, and then having different requests come in separately because they were all statically generated from maybe a schema or something like that. GraphQL wanted to, first of all, 
allow people to bundle several queries at once or even several mutations. We can, I don't think it will allow bundling a query and a mutation acting on the results of those query. I think that's decidedly against its uh, design, but it definitely can execute an, an arbitrary number of queries at the same time and also an arbitrary a number of mutations. So if I wanted to change labels on 100 GitHub issues in the same request, theoretically, I can do that, right? And I was really excitedly searching for Go tools that allow you to kind of batch up a bunch of queries, and then they all execute kind of transparently over GraphQL, and it wasn't a thing that I was able to, to find by weeks of, of searching and, and studying the other um, libraries that were, well, the ones that were open source, of course. And another thing that GraphQL really lends itself well into is to stopping overfetching, right? When you make a request to GitHub's REST API, you don't get to choose what you get back. You always get this enormous object back. So we mostly always return absolutely everything about, let's say, a pull request that you're interested in. We return everything about the author of this pull request, all the field of an author all the field of the repository that the pull request is embedded in. As you can imagine, in a lot of back and forth communication, eventually a lot of redundant data is not just being exchanged and parsed, but it's also just being needlessly collected and presents some overhead on, on both client and the server. So in GraphQL, the idea is to only request the fields that you're really interested in, right? But sometimes that between runs, that number of fields for a certain query changes based on user input parameters, right? So now we're back again on this square one where I mentioned with the static compilation of the language, we mostly embed a static struct, which we may be being used as a parse destination for a GraphQL JSON response for a deserialization of, um, that a lot of life's libraries do in a similar way. They, they deserialize into static structs, or at least they always generate a query from the static representation of the resource itself, there's not such consciousness about aiding APIs that will let us choose the fields that are doing that are being queried, right? So I feel that a lot of Go projects right now are using, well, a lot of projects in general right now are using GraphQL because it's trendy, but I feel that Go is a little bit lagging behind because I feel that it wants to use GraphQL because it's trendy, but I feel that these features of the language are precisely what make it a little bit unsuitable. And I'm not saying unsuitable in an in a absolute sense, but I'm saying it's a little bit harder to achieve that a theoretical idea of what GraphQL is best in. So I guess that my unpopular opinion would be that I'm not really convinced that it's being used in a really good way now. And right now, I'm also not the person who is offering a better way to do it. But I'm really interested in exploring a better way to do it. And I'm really interested in bouncing ideas with potentially better Go developers to kind of figure out how to solve this problem and potentially create another client that could be used not just with the GitHub GraphQL API, but for any other. And I would be the first project to migrate over to that because I would really be keen on, on figuring out how we can batch and squash queries together and also use more of concurrency features that Go is so good in. So I heard I heard Ms. Lav say that all current Go implementations of GraphQL clients suck. And <laughs> <laughs> that and that a new one ought to exist and PRs are welcome or new brand new projects are welcome. <laughs> <laughs>
those are to say suck would be a hard word, but uh, I'm very thankful for right now we're using Shurkul slash GraphQL uh, for mm-hmm. GitHub CLI, and it's an excellent library. I would I would uh, recommend checking it out. Um, but I also would like to explore it, what can we do on top of that approach? How can we take that approach even further? Mm-hmm. Like on one hand, I'm not too shocked that that's the current like state of everything. One, because Go, like you said, does not strike me as a language that is really meant, like it, it doesn't seem as flexible as some of the other languages. Like if you're writing JavaScript, it's a lot more flexible in what you can get away with. Um, but then the other aspect of it is so many front-end UIs for websites are built in JavaScript, you know, pretty much all of them, or something that compiles into JavaScript at some point. So as a result, you like expect the libraries to be there. But with CLIs, while there are a decent bit of CLIs, I think, being written in Go, I don't think the numbers, like the sheer number is not quite there, especially for you're building a CLI and you happen to be interacting with an API that's GraphQL. Like that's got to be a pretty small number right now. Now that could grow. I don't know, but but I could definitely see that being like not a huge you know audience right now. That's a fair assessment, but I I believe it will grow. For instance, I would definitely right now prefer to use GitHub's GraphQL API, and I'm not just saying this because I'm of course I'm biased. I'm a GitHub employee, but I was first and foremost always a GitHub user, and I had had used all of their APIs since the first day they shipped until now through their different iterations. And those powers of the GraphQL that I described are definitely where I see going forward in the future. They are harder to set up, but they have a bigger payoff. And I I feel tech is inevitably going towards that. Look at Kubernetes, for instance, like, right, harder to set up. There's a huge payoff at the end of that. And so I think this space will evolve. I'm curious if that's one of those fields where, or areas where if Go doesn't find a good solution, it possibly becomes less useful as a CLI like language. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I mean, Dumb. it's possible. If, if a lot Dumb. of APIs end up being GraphQL APIs and Go doesn't do it well, <laughs> I could see that being problematic. Blasphemy. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen any other static language do it any better to my knowledge, but I, I don't know. I'm sure somebody will tell me Rust does it better. <laughs> There's always somebody's going to tell you Rust does it better. <laughs> So, Mr. Lav, you had two. You have two unpopular, or was that like a two-in-one? No, that wasn't two-in-one. I have another one if you have time. Ah, oh, please. Okay, so the other thing that I'm really opinionated on, and also directly related to a lot of things that we're talking about, especially early on with Hub, is just generally Git. And when I say Git in this context of the today's show, I mean the Git, uh, Git uh, CLI, the Git command line interface, which I would... Also there to say this is the primary interface to Git itself, because Git is a, a concept, it's a storage mechanism, and it's also a protocol, and uh, reference implementations in it can also be in C libraries, it can be imported in a project. So Git is all of that. But I think most clients of Git still right now um, wrap Git on the command line. And... A lot of users, I can't say most because I have no data on the thing. A lot of users like myself also still primarily use Git on a command line as a primary interface to Git. So my unpopular opinion is that Git is actually so hard to not just learn, but to use consistently. And I say that as a person who used it for 
probably over 10 years because I used it since GitHub was in beta and I heard of this Git thing and it was trending and it was like cool and probably my only early adoption thing kicked in around that time when I wanted to check it out. And since then I was using it probably every day, at least every day that I'm on my computer, which is not every day, but the, every day that I'm on my computer, I was using it. And I have interfaced with it so often and read all of its man pages and documentation and everything. And still to this day, 10 years later, sometimes it's hard for me to explain people when they come to me with a very basic question of like, oh, I just you know, pushed a change. I really didn't want to push that. So how do I undo, right? So from their perspective, that's like a really reasonable ask to make. And then I'm just... I'm sorry, you know, this is going to sound like I am teasing you or that I'm mocking you, but actually I'm really being frank and I'm going to give you my advice. It's just not going to be great. Or for instance, when people ask, how do I delete a branch? And then (laughs) I have to ask them, well, (laughs) what do you want to do? Do you want to delete a local branch? And then I just get it recreated when you pull again from the same remote or delete the remote tracking branch or delete the remote branch. And now for the first time, I'm realizing that they have never even considered that there's such a thing because why would they? A branch is just a single (laughs) concept in our head that is made needlessly uh, complicated by, I wouldn't say needlessly, but it is made complicated by the inherent distributed nature of Git. It's not to say that I've become disillusioned with the tech itself. I think it's amazing. And I think that the tech itself is uh, the quality of the tech that is Git is a testament to GitHub being able to make it this far in the tech space. And I think it evolved amazingly as well. But I think it's an evo- in its evolution, it's only getting bigger. It's just getting more commands. And even though its documentation is getting, by every year, it's getting more approachable by newcomers. And there is really good mat- mat- man page uh, documentation by now. And error messaging is fantastic because it often suggests you what you should do next to get yourself out of the mess that, that you've accidentally made. I feel that it's with all that power that it's gaining, that is just instead of being more approachable tool, that is actually being a tool that is continuously making feel pe- people feel frustrated to the point where I feel that whatever the next version control system is, and it does not have to be something separate than Git. Uh, it maybe should be just a really powerful abstraction built on top of Git. But I think whatever the next iteration of a, the people's version control tool, it should be something that is just more reflective of how we think about what is version control for us? And how people think about things is generally always very simple. It's just, I have some changes. I want to share it with John and Johnny so they can tell me what they think. And then maybe they can add their ideas. And then we can have a merging of our ideas and then eventually test out if it works and have it out there and ship it, right? That wasn't hard to explain. I think it's very easy for all of our listeners to um, to kind of understand that mental model in their heads. But then when we come to physically typing out all those commands, suddenly we need months or sometimes even years of learning this set of tools to become proficient enough with them. I have really initially resisted the idea of graphical tools for Git because I was this heavy terminal nerd, but I was very much in my terminal bubble of being really proficient with a lot of these things because I was for 10 years before even that, my my Git 
uh, learning, I was using just terminal tools in general because I was a very Linux nerd. And I feel that even though it was easy for, not easy, but it was possible for me to learn that, I, I feel that nobody should need to have spent so much time in a terminal to be able to understand those things. And I especially see it when somebody f not from my background is approaching this. So I would definitely say it's not such an unpopular opinion. I, I heard a lot of people ex express their anguish, especially on Twitter with their inability to use Git command line, even after a long while. I definitely feel like the Go GraphQL world or something. This is like a something in version control, the user hands-on aspect of version control, how we interact with it is needs to be built as something that is much more closer to how humans think about it rather than being, I will get you to think about a directed graph or you know, <laughs> as, a, as a operations on a directed graph or something like that. No human thinks about that. Humans think about, I'm going to save my work and I'm going to share it with other people. And then I'm going to step off this computer and just leave for the day. So I heard Miss Slav say, we should all go back to using Visual Source Safe or something. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I, I kid, I kid. Oh. I guess this short TLDR version would be, I feel that version control systems, the next version of them should not be something that was specifically made for the Linux kernel community, but should be something that was specifically designed to be used by the wider community. And it can still be implemented on top of the Git tech, or it doesn't have to be. For me, I love version control and I'm gonna love it in any iteration it appears in. And I feel that the next one should be with a more broader users in mind than a bunch of people who are already really comfortable with their terminals and they're reading the email from mailing lists in their terminals already and <laughs> unpacking patches by typing out tar command in a, in a single go. And the new generation's users that I witnessed, the users of GitHub are, are not those people and they're not me and they're not those Linux uh, maintainers. Sometimes they're even designers. Uh, we have a designer on our team and she would if given left to her own devices, she would use a graphical tool for version control, like get a desktop. And not because just because it's easier, but I think it's just a saner solution. I've also felt it that I sometimes feel just very safely coddled by a tool that just says, okay, save, here's a save button. Okay, here's a nice rendering of what just happened. I've grown to now be in between the worlds of not being so seduced into thinking that the terminals are answers to any everything, but also to always consider that there's a graphical equivalent of things and there's better abstractions that we can do and uh, that, that we should be more inclusive with our software in general. I think Git has sort of fallen victim to the fact that you have a bunch of power users who want to be able to do anything and everything, and it enables that. But like you said now, the average user wants to do like 1% of what Git can do. Average things, right? <laughs> Average things, like maybe 1%. And I think because of that, it's just hard to, like, it's it's kind of like you talked about, I think you talked about libraries earlier, like Hub, you didn't want to like break it for anybody who's using it. But realistically, there almost needs to be two versions of Git. Like, this is the average user's version, and this is the, you want to be able to do everything under the sun version, but that's hard to maintain. That's not... 
you know, it's, it's hard to sort of make that work, which is a challenge. Cause I'm even thinking of, um, like Git has the tools to do like a binary search to figure out where something broke and, 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 you know, where a bug was introduced and the average user probably has no idea how to do that, which makes sense. Cause most people probably aren't doing that, but, but those things all are there and they exist and they're cool, but it's just every time you want to use them, you're like, let me go find the just, you know, tutorial that teaches me how to do it again. Cause <laughs> I sure don't remember. Indeed. Well, it is that time. Sadly, we have to go away. I know you will miss us in our absence, but it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Ms. Love. Thank you so much for the insight on uh, on Hub, sort of how it came to be, and uh, of course, uh, it's it's uh, successor GH or the GitHub official CLI. And uh, yeah, we're glad you made the decision to to write that in Go, um, even though that has its challenges. Um, uh, from what we hear, we think you think it was a good decision. Are we are we in the right ballpark? Definitely. Um, one thing that I'm happy about having chosen it is that I get to now learn it better as well as a result of it. And that also happens sometimes with people's contributions. We say, well, I switched to this standard library thing. And then as a result, I'm like, wow, this exists. This is great. And something like this happens every week. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for thank you for coming, John. Thank you for being an excellent uh, co-host. And uh, we will catch you on the next Go Time. If you're a fan of GitHub and the work Miss Lav and many others are doing there, we have more episodes like this one for you. GitHub or Denise Yu was on GoTime 131. The CTO, Jason Warner, was on the changelog number 395. And I learned all about their Arctic Code Vault from John Evans on the changelog as well. You can scroll through them and listen to the ones that pique your interest on the GitHub topic on changelog.com. That's changelog.com slash topic slash GitHub. I'll link it in your show notes for easy clickings. This episode was hosted by Johnny Borsico and John Calhoun. It was produced by Jared Santo, and our music is brought to you by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. GoTime is provided by our awesome sponsors. Special thanks to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. That's our show for this week. On next week's show, we welcome Paul Smith, who tells us the awesome story of how he used Go to save healthcare.gov. Also, I step up to the microphone to share an unpopular opinion that I think will actually be unpopular around these parts. Stay tuned for that. We'll talk to you then.